tonight to the book of Philippians. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand. You know the drill. And our strategically placed ushers that are hiding will hand the Bible off to you. And we are in chapter 1, picking up in verse 12. The church at Philippi was the first church that was established on the European continent. The catalyst that caused the church to germinate and begin to grow was the circumstances that surrounded the Apostle Paul while he was there in the city. You might recall from our study last week or from our study in the book of Acts that Paul was arrested unjustly. He was beaten brutally and he was held there in a dungeon in the city of Philippi. But it wasn't the beating that Paul endured or even the bonds that Paul was held by that caused the gospel to grip the hearts of the people there in the city, but rather it was the reaction of Paul to the circumstances that he found himself in followed by the supernatural release of Paul because the Spirit of God, uh, you know, sent the earthquake and broke those chains and, and, and caused Paul to be released. You remember, he was taken captive because of the liberty that was given to a demon-possessed girl. And he was beaten there by the magistrates, the people. He was bound and he was put into a prison there with Silas, unjustly arrested. And and at midnight, the scripture tells us that they began to sing songs of praise to the Lord in the audience of the prison guards and of the other captives that were held there in the prison. And the Lord responded to Paul's praise by sending an earthquake and the chains were broken, not just of Paul, but of all of the other prisoners that were there. Now, When that happened, that earthquake that broke the chains, not only did it result in the salvation of the guards that were there keeping Paul and watching Paul, and also of those that were in the prison, but also the story of what happened to Paul while he was there began to spread forth and it opened the door for many in that city to hear the gospel and thus the church was born. So the people in the city of Philippi, they saw the reaction of Paul to the trial that was brought upon him. And then they witnessed the release of Paul from the prison and it was in their minds established forever as a memory and a testimony of both the existence of God and also the power of God. Now, the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians is written 11 years after the events that transpired in the book of Acts. And as Paul now writes to these Philippian Christians, he is in prison again. Just as he was chained while he was in the city of Philippi, now he's in prison again. This time not in Philippi, of course, but in Rome. And the Philippians, they hear word that Paul is in prison, and so they take up a collection, 
And they send it to Paul in Rome, who's there in the prison. They send a gift, but they also express concern for Paul and maybe even a little bit of confusion concerning the circumstances that Paul finds himself in. Now, Paul receives this gift and he hears, you know, uh, of their confusion, of their concern, and he responds to them by sending this letter, the letter that we're reading, in which he both thanks them, of course, for the gift that they sent, But he also addresses their concerns. He seizes the opportunity to talk to them about the issue of trials and tribulations. See, when Paul was in Philippi, he was imprisoned, but it was for a very short period of time. Because he simply sang a song, and the Lord miraculously broke the chains, and Paul was delivered and set free. And I'm sure they must have been thinking, well, wait a minute, why, Paul, don't you just sing again? You're in Rome and you're in prison. When you were here and you were in prison, you saw the Lord miraculously deliver you from that trial, from that trouble. So why don't you just start singing a song again with whoever's there with you and see the Lord's deliverance again? Why doesn't the Lord deliver you now that you're in prison in Rome? And and perhaps the, the, the Philippians, perhaps they were thinking like us. What comes across your mind when you find yourself in the middle of a trial or a prison that you just can't break free from? We start to think, well, this must be punishment from God. This is chastisement for the decisions I've made or the actions that I've done. And so I'm in prison now because of what I've done. And so therefore I've got to serve this sentence so that I can satisfy the anger or the grievedness of God. This must be consequences. Or sometimes we think, as Paul might have been thinking in the mind at least of the the, the church there, that maybe God is done. The reason for this prison, the reason for this pain, is because God is finished with me. He's not going to use me anymore. He's not going to use Paul anymore, they might have been thinking. Well, Paul takes the opportunity to say, no, it's none of that. My chains, my bonds, are not because God is angry with me. They're not because of the, you know consequences of actions or decisions that I've made. And certainly, I don't believe that God is done with me, Paul says. None of that is the reason. So why then is the reason that Paul is in prison and that God isn't delivering him from the circumstances that he's in? And so Paul takes the remainder of chapter 1, after the introduction that he gave in the first 11 verses, he now, for the rest of the chapter addresses the issue or answers the question of why does God allow trouble and trials in our lives? And of course, he uses himself as the example. And so three reasons here in verses 12 through 30 that Paul gives to us concerning why God may allow trials and tribulations in our lives. And of course, he's using himself as an example. And the first one right there in verses 12 and 13 is that Paul's trials led to the furtherance of the gospel. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. He says, But I would that you should understand, brethren, 
that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ, or my chains in Christ, are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Now, hearing this must have brought a smile to the face of the Philippian Christians. As they realize and just hear Paul say that, hey, this prison circumstance that I'm in has actually led to the furtherance of the gospel. They probably chuckled a little bit because in their mind it resonated. The memory of what took place 11 years earlier while Paul was uh, uh, amongst them. What happened while Paul was in prison in Philippi? The very existence of their church was the result of Paul's imprisonment. They knew firsthand how the gospel can grow legs through Paul's being in prison. They saw it. They were living proof of it. And here Paul says that, listen, understand that my chains have led to the furtherance of the gospel because the message has gone not only through the palace, but in all other places. Something interesting happens when a person is put in prison. Someone can be living a, a, a life that is involved in this thing or that thing. They could be just wh- whoever it is in whatever arena of life or wherever. They could just be going on. They could be successful. They could be whatever they are. And, and no one would ever really know about it. But then once a person gets into trouble, people start paying attention, don't they? Let me ask you, by show of hands, how many people here know who John Brody is? Does that name ring a bell to anybody? How about Alan Page? How about Larry Brown? Ken Stabler? couple hands. How about O.J. Simpson? Oh, a lot of hands. You see, now, now all of the names that I just read to you, they were all NFL MVPs in the early 1970s. And, and you really didn't know who any of them were until I said O.J. Simpson. And, and the reason is, of course, you don't know O.J. Simpson perhaps as the 1973 NFL MVP, but rather as the man who was accused of murdering his wife. Because, you see, once a person of prominence gets into trouble people begin to pay attention to what's going on in their life and what they're about. Paul is essentially saying, because I'm in prison and because of the controversy that surrounds my ministry and my message, I've been on the cover of the National Enquirer, the National Examiner, Newsweek, the New York Post, the New York Times, and I'm in every news show that they're talking about what's going on with me. And it's causing people to hear about my ministry and my message and consequently consider for themselves the ramifications of what it means and what it carries. And so my chains have not been a hindrance to the ministry that God has given to me, but rather they've resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. It's causing people to hear about it. Now, not only that... But consider also with me that had it not been for Paul's imprisonment there in Rome during this season of his life, we would have no letter to the Philippians. We wouldn't have Ephesians, which was also written during this time. We wouldn't have Colossians, and we wouldn't have Philemon. Four New Testament letters that have been furthering the gospel, if you would, completing the message for 2,000 years 
were the result of Paul's imprisonment, something perhaps that he never could have comprehended was taking place within his life while he was there in the prison. And so Paul's trial led to the furtherance of the gospel. Second of all, in verse 14, Paul's trials also produced confidence and boldness in others. He says, And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds or my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. When those that knew Paul heard word concerning his chains and the trial that he was undergoing and the persecution he was suffering, it stirred them to action in the things of God. Now, we don't know if it was the realization that Paul isn't going to live forever and that he's doing this work and that there's a need now for people to step up because he's, in a sense, taken off the scene, and that that, you know, stirred them up, and it was a natural source of exhortation, uh, you know, that caused them to be motivated when they saw Paul's imprisonment. But what we find here is that the persecution that Satan launched against Paul, seeking to silence him, actually resulted in causing others to speak boldly in the name of the Lord. What did Jesus say? He said that the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And rather than causing fear and silence to grip the hearts of those that were co-laboring with Paul, instead it caused boldness and confidence to to, to come out of their lives as a result of them seeing. Now, it's true that Paul's chains produced boldness and confidence in others to speak the word without fear. However... Paul goes on to tell us that not all of that boldness and that confidence came from a pure motivation. Not everyone that was kind of picking up Paul's slack while he was in prison was doing it for the right reasons. Notice what he says as he goes on in verse 15. He says, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. He says that there are some that are preaching, some that are stirred up by my imprisonment, and their motivation is envy, and they're doing it out of strife and contention, or if you would, competition. They are envious of the fruitfulness of Paul's ministry. They've heard and seen the effect that his message and his his heart has had upon regions of people and multitudes of souls that are saved. And because of their envy for what Paul was seeing happen in his life and in his ministry, and now them understanding that he was in prison and that he could no longer preach, they said, well, I'm I'm the one that the mantle is going to fall upon now. Now that Paul is in prison, I'm going to be the next apostle. I'll be the one that moves and and kind of steps in his footsteps and, and, and is able to carry on this work, jealous of Paul's ministry and motivated by competition. How many souls did Paul save? Well, let's see how many souls I can get saved. Paul is the one being talked about. Maybe I can be the one that's being talked about, that's being praised and and, and lauded 
in congregations as being anointed and under the power of God. Maybe I'll have a bigger church even than what Paul had. And, and, and so they, them seeing Paul off the scene, it stirred them to work all the much harder in the name of the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. The Apostle Paul says something, that a verse that's been so just profitable to me. It's one of those ones that I have hung up somewhere in my mind that, that's always there, just always speaking to me. 2 Corinthians 10, 12, it says this, and this is Paul writing. He says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves, and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. In other words, when the motivation for your service to the Lord, whether you're preaching like Paul was, or whether you're serving in any other area or at any capacity, if your motivation is based upon what you see someone else doing, or a desire to perhaps compete with them in the things of God to see who's more fruitful or more productive, Paul says that's not the wise way to go. He uses these other words back in, in Philippians to describe them. He says that they're not sincere. It's insincere. We talked about that word last week. The word sincere means without wax, which means that, hey, I am what I am, but I offer it to God. He says these are not that way. They come with polished presentation. They appear on the outward to be absolutely perfect and pristine in their Christian walk in life. And they put off an aura as though you need them or that somehow if you could be a part of their ministry, you might be able to attain their stature in the things of God and have that they're insincere. They, they don't realize that they're just broken nothings that God can use. They're insincere. And, Paul says, that they carry with them the assumption he says, supposing themselves, that word supposing means that they're assuming that they're adding affliction to my chains. He says that they're uh, at the end of, in verse 16. He says that they're supposing to add affliction. In other words, these people are thinking in their mind, they're thinking to themselves, <laughs> Paul's in prison and we're still preaching and Paul is writhing in prison because he knows that we're going to surpass him in excellence in the ministry. And Paul says, well, they're assuming that, but not so. Why, why is it that it isn't wise to use other ministries or other people's fruitfulness as a measurement for our own fruitfulness or our own productivity in ministry? Two reasons just for you to think through, you know, that verse back in 2 Corinthians where Paul says that they're not wise. Number one is because if you are comparing yourselves with others as a measure, measuring mark or as the standard of your ministry, the first thing that that's going to produce is a lack of longevity. A lack of longevity. Because you're not drawing from the Lord as the source and the empowerment for your service but rather you're drawing your, your source, your energy is being motivated by competing with someone else. Just this morning, we uh, um, got the, uh, a new Christian book distributors catalog, you know, with, with all the, the bestsellers, you know. 
and, and I was flipping through the pages, and, and, you know, normally Christian books, you know, they're supposed to get Christians excited. You know, you see the things that are coming out and all these books, and, and I'm looking at this thing, but, but I wasn't excited. There was something in me that was like, like, like the check engine light went on, you know, and, and it almost had like a spiritual odor to it as I was turning the pages. Because what I noticed is that there's nothing in there that's, that's original. Not, that's a bad word, original. There's nothing in there that's like sincere. It, it, it seems like all that's coming out are people copying other authors that have struck a vein with people. You know, a book comes out and so it's just revolutionary and it opens up this whole avenue of, uh, of enlightenment within the Christian walk and faith. You know, something like Radical or some David Platt's thing. You know. And all of a sudden, that now the nine other best-selling books are people that have kind of tapped into that vein and they're now running with that same message. And they're so, oh, you know, these books, we got to get these books. And then, you know, then the other one is like, you always find like nine or ten books on sex in the Christian life. Oh, 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 you know, and and I start reading this and I'm going to myself, I'm like, what are are they doing? What is this? And here's what it is. Here's what's happening. Is that rather than drawing from the Lord and going to the source, the word of God, they're just copying from each other. Well, what are they doing over there? How is it working in that church? How is God moving in that region? Let's do what they're doing and hope that we get the same kind of result that they're getting. But here's the problem with that is that when you're doing that, you're not growing a branch from the trunk, but you're rather growing a branch from a branch. They're they're a branch. And now you're attaching to the branch and trying to grow a branch, and it doesn't work that way. It comes from the roots. And the roots is the Lord, and it comes from His Word. Most churches operate by just looking what all the other churches are doing and then just doing that, just making a cookie-cutter image of that church. Jesus said that it's his word, that he exalts his word above his name. It comes from the source. And so Paul says it's not wise. It doesn't make for longevity. You always have to find the next trend in order to feed that type of thing. The other thing that this type of motivation does and why it's not wise is because it doesn't carry with it a reward in eternity it doesn't carry a reward in eternity paul said though i speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love i am just a sounding brass a clanging cymbal if i have all the faith to move mountains and i speak with the tongues of men and angels and i can do all these things feeding the poor giving my body to be burned but if i don't have love And Paul is saying here that these people that are motivated by jealousy and by competition, they're not doing it out of love. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, read on. Look at verse 17. But the other of love. (laughs) So if, if they're not, if the others are doing it for envy, strife, and competition, the contrast to that is those that are preaching sincerely because they have a heart. The others are doing it out of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. They're not competing with others. They're not envious. They're not wishing that they were the apostle and that everybody was talking about them. But now look at Paul's heart, and I love it. This is why Paul was so fruitful in the things of God. Look at verse 18. He says, what then? Notwithstanding 
every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Paul says, hey, half of the people that are picking up my slack are doing it because they're jealous and competitive. The other half are doing it out of love because they have a heart for the Lord, a heart for the loss, and they know that I'm set for the defense of the gospel. And Paul says, I don't care what their motivation is. If they're preaching Christ, then God bless them. May they be fruitful and productive because no matter what their motive is, that is not going to hinder the gospel of Christ. The gospel is still the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. The word of God is still going to bear fruit no matter what the motivation is behind the person who's giving it forth. It isn't of him that willeth nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Paul says, I don't care why they do it. Let them prosper because if they prosper, I prosper. We prosper. You know, I heard, I remember, I wasn't part of the Jesus movement. I missed it by a few years and 3,000 miles, you know, but... I'm a, I'm a beneficiary of it because, you know, the fruit of it has reached even to us, you know. But one of the things that I have heard about what it was like when God poured out his spirit in, in California in the 60s and 70s, you know, is that it wasn't just Calvary Chapel that was exploding and, and really bearing fruit. That all of the churches... In, in that area and in that region were bursting at the seams. It didn't matter if it was Methodist or Baptist or Lutheran. It wasn't just like, you know, the, the ones that had a dove. Is that God was doing something so mighty that all of the churches were, were profiting. And that's what we pray for here. We're, we're not in this thing to compete with other churches or to be, you know, uh, one of the, the, the best churches in Poughkeepsie or in the region. We pray that God would pour out his spirit on Dutchess County on the northeast of the United States. And we pray with that, that it wouldn't just be our church that, 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 that experiences the, the fruit of such revival, but that the whole region would. That all of the churches in this area would be prospered and abounding with people getting saved. And so that was the heart of Paul. He says that this is the way it is to be. If they prosper, we prosper because the Lord prospers. Now, notice what he says in verse 19. He says, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation. And the word salvation there is the word deliverance. If you have a, 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 you know, a newer translation, you might have that word. Or if you have a marginal reference Bible, you might have that word. He's not talking about his salvation from his sin, but he's talking about deliverance from his dungeon. He says, I know that this shall turn to my deliverance. What, Paul? What's going to turn to your deliverance? The people preaching the gospel? No. Not the people that are preaching the gospel, but rather his attitude of rejoicing. Look again at the end of verse 18. He says, and in this therein I do rejoice. Yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, you recall in Philippi, it was Paul's rejoicing that resulted in his deliverance, right? It was when he was sitting there bloodied and beaten and that him and Silas began to sing 
that his deliverance came from the prison. And Paul says, whether it was in the jail in Philippi or whether it's here in this dungeon in Rome, it's not going to be anything but my rejoicing that will result in my deliverance. Now, he's not saying that his chains are going to miraculously be broken again. Because when you get down to the end of uh, verse 20 there, he he says, I'm not sure if I'm going to get out or uh, if I'm going to live or if I'm going to die. I don't know what's going to happen to me in this prison. But he says, my rejoicing will result in my deliverance. How does rejoicing result in deliverance for the Christian? This is such a key in the Christian life. And if you hear nothing else I say tonight, I hope you hear this and that you write it down and that, that you never forget the sentence I'm about to share with you. In the Christian life, the way out of anything that you want to get out of, whether it's prison or circumstance or whatever else it might be, the way out in the Christian life is to embrace joyfully the thing that you're trying to get away from. The way out of anything in the Christian life is to joyfully embrace the thing that you're trying to... I did not say accept. I didn't say joyfully accept it. I said joyfully embrace it. It's much different. See, we can accept things disdainfully. But we can't embrace things joyfully with disdain. That's what it is. See, what we do is we have these things. We have these prisons, these dungeons, these things that in our lives that we would so desire to be free from. And we try everything we can to get away from them. We come up with schemes and plans. We spend thousands and thousands of dollars, energy and thought, and we lose sleep. And we do all this trying to figure out how we can get out of this situation. And yet, we continually, week after week, month after month, year after year, find ourselves still in those same situations, and none of our plans seem to work. Because nothing, none of those things are going to get, going to work in the Christian thing. It doesn't happen that way. So what's the way out? The way out is this. Embrace joyfully the thing that you're trying to get away from. Embrace it joyfully as the perfect will of God for your life right now. That this is an ingredient in God's plan within my life. And then do you know what happens? You're free. You're delivered. The chain might not be gone. The circumstance or the situation might not be different. But you become different. You're changed. Because your perspective has changed. You're no longer looking at this as something that's to be disdained and to be, you know, run from and and, and liberated from. But rather you see it for what it is. This is the will of God for my life right now. And his purposes are good. And therefore you're able to rejoice in whatever it is because... Your rejoicing is not in the chain, but rather it's in the God who's holding the chain and accomplishing his cause within your life for your good. This shall turn to my deliverance, my rejoicing in a circumstance that maybe isn't the best or what I would choose. Number three, Paul moves on. Paul's trials not only led to the furtherance of the gospel, 
not only did uh, uh, you know produce confidence and boldness in others, but Paul's trials also led to the magnifying of Christ. The magnification of Christ. Look with me at verse 20. He says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Christ will be magnified. You say, why does Christ need to be magnified? Is it because he's small? You, you, normally, you know, we, we put a magnifying glass in front of something because it's too small for us to see with the naked eye, and so therefore it needs magnification. Well, why would we need Christ to be magnified? I mean, is it because Christ is small? No, it's not because Christ is small. It's because we're so far away from him in an unsaved state. People that don't know the Lord, fallen mankind, are so far from him that though he is huge, he appears to be small. The earth that we're standing on right now, we're sitting upon, is 24,000 miles in circumference. 8,000 miles in diameter. And, you know, when we try to consider that, what that means, you know, it makes us feel real small and it makes the earth seem real big. But you know, the earth really isn't that big. Because the sun, which is 93 million miles away from us, the sun has a diameter that is 108 times that of the earth. 864,000 miles. And you could fit 1,300,000 earths inside the sun. And you say, well, okay, now that's big. But you know what? It's really not. It's actually really small. Because when you consider Antares, a medium-sized star, Antares is the star that makes up the, the middle of the constellation Scorpio up there, uh, you know, in the night sky. Antares, a medium-sized star, that can fit 512 million suns inside of it. 512 million suns inside of it. And we say, well, that's huge. But really, it's not. Because when you consider Betelgeuse, the right shoulder of the constellation of Orion, a red supergiant, you know, that can hold 1.6 billion suns in it, and it can hold three Antares inside Betelgeuse. And we think, man, that is big. Really, it's not. Because V.Y. Canis Majoris, which is the largest star that we are able to measure in our solar system, it's part of the constellation Canis Majoris, can hold 9.6 billion suns inside of it, and it can fit just under six of Betelgeuse inside of it. Now, that's big. And it is big. That's big. But consider with me for one minute that if you just hold your thumbnail in the right place, whether we're talking about the sun or Antares or Betelgeuse or C or VY Canis Majoris, whatever it is, if you just hold your thumb in the right place, you can block it out completely. 
something that big, you can block it out completely. Why? Because it's small? No. But because you're so far away. And see, Christ isn't small. His power isn't small. His light isn't small. But fallen man is so far away from a holy God that he needs to be magnified. Well, how is a holy God magnified? Paul says he's magnified through my trials. My tribulation, the chains, the things that I'm bound with, the things that are a gripe, a grievance to me, those things are the way wherein people can see something that otherwise would be too far away for them to comprehend and to understand. How do trials that you and I go through magnify Christ for those that are looking at our lives? See, the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, the person who's saved and the person who isn't, the difference is not that we have it easy and they have it hard. That's the misconception. People think, well, I'm going to come to Christ and he's going to give me peace. He's going to fix my marriage. He's going to heal my body. He's going to bless my finances. And everything in my life is going to become this primrose path of joy, blessing, and sweetness of aroma. You know, and everything is just going to be, and, and that's the Christian life. How many people want to get saved? Anyone want to get saved tonight? Yeah, you all do, right? Listen, it doesn't happen that way. Jesus said that the sun shines upon the just and the unjust. He says that the rain falls upon the just and the unjust. Both the sun and the rain can either be good or bad, depending on where and what and the, the, you know, the other conditions. He says, listen, we're all on this planet together, and every one of us goes through trials and tribulations, whether you are saved or not. So the glory of the Christian life is not that we have it easy and that they don't. The glory of the Christian life is that when we suffer, and we all suffer, we have Christ. And our sufferings give the world that doesn't know Christ an opportunity to see Christ working in our lives the way we handle our trials and our tribulations. When we go through something, deep waters, the psalmist talks about the valley of Baca. You know, it even sounds bad, right? It's the valley of weeping. David spoke about the valley of the shadow of death, you know. And when we go through these things, but yet because we're leaning upon Christ and we're trusting in Christ, therefore we don't complain about the circumstances and the situations that we're in. Then when people see those things happening within our lives, they take note of the fact that we possess joy, even though we're in the midst of a battle or in the midst of a valley or in the midst of a time of weeping. And there might be weeping. It isn't wrong to weep. But if you're hoping in Christ, then the light of Christ is going to come forth out of your life. They're going to see that you're in a trial, but you're not running away. The rest of the world would just take these conditions and they would pack sand. They would leave those things and, and, and find a better way, find a better life. But you're not. There's something different about you. You're hanging in there and there's strength, there's joy, there's victory in your life. You're being beaten, you're being spit upon, you're being cruelly mocked, but yet you don't bite back. You remain faithful in the situation. You stand in there and you take it. What is it about you? And notice that Paul is using himself as an example of these things. He says that Christ is going to be magnified in my body, whether it be by life, Caesar gives me the thumbs up and I go on living, 
or by death. Caesar gives me the thumbs down and I lose my head. He says, I don't care if I live or if I die. I am set that Christ is going to be magnified in my body and he will be seen by all those in Caesar's palace and in all other places by the power of Christ in my life in the midst of this time of trial. He doesn't know if he's going to live or if he's going to die. But notice what he says in verse 21. He says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If you had to take that sentence, and in your own life, erase the word Christ and the word gain, so that there was two blanks there, for me to live is blank, and to die is blank. If you were honest, what would go in those two lines? For me to live is wealth. For me to die is to leave it behind for someone else. For me to live is health. For me to die is to fail. For me to live is fame. To be known, to be praised, to be remembered. To die is to be forgotten. No matter what you accomplish or how famous you are in your lifetime, you will be forgotten. For me to live is pleasure. To experience pleasure. And to die is pain. In the absence of all pleasure. There's only one word that you can put in the first half of that phrase that results in the second word on the other half of that phrase to be gain, and that is Christ. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let me ask you, what are you living for? What is it that you're living for? Because the only thing that's going to last into, all, into eternity, that's going to last, have any everlasting nature to it at all, is Christ. And Paul says, the reason I can have this attitude and go through this this way and experience the strength is because my whole life is Christ. Everything that I'm living for, everything that drives me, everything that motivates me is Christ. Whether it be in this world or whether it be in heaven, I want Christ. And therefore, to, for me to live is to experience Christ on earth. But for me to die is even better because then I'll see him face to face. Now I see through a glass darkly, but then I shall know even as I am known. So for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. By the way, this refutes two doctrines that you may have heard about or that you may hear about at some point. First of all, it refutes the doctrine of soul sleep. That when a person dies, they just go into the ground and they're there in the ground waiting for the rapture or for the resurrection. Because if that's true, that if you just die and you just go into this state of rest, then you can't say that to die is gain. You say that to die is rest. You know, you're in the ground. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this. He says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So this refutes that idea that when you die, you just go into the ground and you wait. No, no, no. To be absent from the body is present with the Lord. To die is gain. It also refutes the doctrine of purgatory. 
that somehow you go to a place of limbo or suspension where you pay a penance for the sins that you committed while you were in the body and you wait there until you fulfilled your time and then you can go into glory. Because Paul himself would say, I'm the chief of sinners. He wasn't lying. He wasn't saying it for emphasis. He knew his fallen nature. And so this refutes those two things. But what are you living for? Well, Paul tells them of his dilemma. Verse 22, he says, But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not. I don't know. For I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh, to stay behind, is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide And continue with you for your furtherance and joy of faith. That your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Paul says, I know I'm not going to die. This isn't the end of the road for me. And it wouldn't be. Paul would be set free and his ministry would go on. Not because Paul says it's better for me to live here on earth. But rather he says because it's better for you. It's better for you if I stick around for a while more. And so I'm confident that I will, that you might rejoice and that you might be furthered in your faith by my ministry unto you. Well, then he goes on and he closes the chapter by answering the question of how Christ is magnified through our tribulations or when. Because listen, just going through trials and tribulations does not automatically mean that Christ is going to be magnified in your body. It's handling those trials and tribulations the right way that causes Christ to be magnified in your life through your suffering. So when is Christ magnified in our lives? Three things real quick as we close the chapter. He says there in verse 27, he says, only let your lifestyle, that word conversation is the word lifestyle, only let your lifestyle be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. That is, when our difficulties or our tribulations or our trials, when those things don't cause us to compromise our moral behavior. See, many times when a person starts going through trials and tribulations, it causes them to backslide. They say, well, if God's going to let me go through this, and God's going to let these things happen, and He's not going to intervene and take care of me, well, then I'm just going to go back to the old ways. If I'm not going to receive comfort from Christ, then I'll receive comfort from Southern Comfort. (laughs) Or or, or whatever else that sin might be. And, And their moral behavior becomes compromised because of the tribulation. And once you do that, you negate the effect of Christ being magnified in your body. Paul says, let your lifestyle be as becometh or that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you are standing fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Number two is that when tough times don't push us into the backseat of ministry. Christ is magnified when our tribulations don't push us into the backseat or onto the sidelines. Another thing that happens when people start to suffer and go through tough times is that they draw back from the things of God. It's just, been, it's just getting too tough. The stack of bills is growing too high. 
The stresses and the pressures of life are growing too great, and I just I have to step aside from my service to the Lord for a while because of the tribulations that I'm going through. Paul says, no, 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 don't do that. He says, let me hear word of you next time I hear that you're standing fast in one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel, that you're holding the line of ministry and fulfilling the calling that you've received from the Lord. Because Christ is magnified in that. When people see our faithfulness, when Christ is still evident and coming through our lives, even though there's difficult times, Christ is magnified. And then finally, he says in verse 28, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you, and listen to Paul's perspective, and let this be the perspective that we have in our time, in our church, in our lives. Verse 29. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. It isn't, just understand that this is something you're going to suffer. He says, no, it's given to you. Something that is given to us is typically known as a gift. And he says, this is a gift to you, that you have the call and the privilege of being those that suffer for his name. Not just believing on him. That's so easy. It doesn't testify anything to anyone, but when we joyfully embrace suffering and tribulation and chains in his name and we receive it as a gift and an opportunity to serve him and magnify him, that's a privilege and an honor. Jesus said, blessed are you when men shall revile you and speak all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. For great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. And when we endure tribulation and suffering joyfully, not only does it magnify Christ, but it elevates our position in eternity. So number three, the way to magnify Christ, is when we remember that tribulation in the Christian life is par for the course. John 16.33, Jesus said, In this world you shall have tribulation. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Paul said, Yea, and all they that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. John chapter 15, verse 20. Jesus said, If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. It says that, Paul and Barnabas, they were confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. And again here in verse 29 of Philippians chapter 1, he says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for his sake. He says, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Now, he's referring back to the time that he was there among them in prison. He says, you now, Philippian church, you now, 
Calvary Chapel in 2012. He says, you now have the same conflict which you saw in me. Remember, Paul says, remember when I was there? Remember when I was beaten unjustly? When I was accused falsely? When I was bound and and left in the dungeon in prison? Remember the conflict that I was facing? Remember how unfair it was? Remember how unsettling it was? Remember how, how much of an inconvenience and an interruption it was to have to go through those things at that time? He says, now you are facing those same types of things. And he says, I'm facing those things again now. You saw it in me, and now you hear it to be. As we close, and we consider this concept, we think about the tribulations being the the will of God, the work of God within our lives. Let me ask you a question. Are you familiar with this verse? It should come up on the screen. Matthew chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus said this. He said, but the hairs of your head are all numbered. You all heard that verse before? The hairs of your head are all numbered. I I just saw someone with no hair rub their head. (laughs) They're still numbered, you know. Zero is a number, you know. I'm heading there. That's why I can say that. You know, I, But I've heard that verse. I've thought about that verse. I've gone through that verse, you know, and it's like one of those things where, you, you know, it kind of like speaks to us about the, the knowledge of God, that he has this vast knowledge that he could number everybody's hair. Like it's this badge that he wears on his vest. Like I know everybody's hairs, you know. But no, no, do you realize that's not why God tells us that. He doesn't need us to know that he's smarter than us. That's not the point. Here's the point. Why does God say that? Let me ask you this. How many of you know the number of hairs on your head? Besides, the guy was zero. How many of the rest of us know the number of hairs on our head? Do you know why God tells us he knows the number of hairs on our head? Because he wants us to know, listen carefully, that he knows you better than you know you. He knows you better than you know you. And the point of that is this, that he knows exactly what you need. And he never makes a bad decision. He knows exactly what you need. Many of you feel tonight like you're in a prison. Maybe you're here tonight and you're a mom and you feel chained to an endless pile of laundry. A sink that produces its own dirty dishes on a continual basis and the pile never gets smaller. And in your mind, you're thinking, I'll be free on the day they go to college. When they're out on their own and they're gone and there's silence in the house and you think, well, that's the day of my freedom. No, 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 listen, that's not the day of your freedom. The day of your freedom is when you choose to joyfully embrace what God has put before you in your life right now and receive it as the perfect will of God for your life because he knows you better than you know you and he knows what you need. Dads, you're in here and you're thinking, oh, I've got 10 years left and then retirement. And I won't be chained to this boss anymore. I won't have to experience this condescending voice anymore. And I won't have to feel the pressure, the pressure of this job and the stress of it, the chains of it. Listen, that's not your deliverance the day of your retirement. Because there's going to be a whole new set of circumstances that trouble you on that day. Your deliverance is when you choose to joyfully embrace what God has placed before you in your life and say, Jesus, in your name, I receive this with thanksgiving. 
and you will be free in your mind. Student, young adult, you're looking at your next 30 years, 40 years out in front of you, thinking this is an insurmountable world to have to climb in. How will I ever do it in this world? Pay the debts, pay the bills, get a house, get a wife, have an income, have stability, a retirement, and and you feel chained to the system. And the circumstances that you find yourself in. Listen, having a house, having a wife, having a car, those things that you think are going to be the symbol of your stability and your status in your life, those things aren't your freedom, your liberty. Those things are your chains in the next 20 years. Your freedom comes when you joyfully embrace where Jesus has you right now and you say, Lord, I belong to you. And the circumstances of my life are your perfect will because you know what I need. You might be chained to a mountain of debt. How am I ever going to pay these bills? I'm going more and more into the red and the torment, the anguish, the anxiety that comes from it, it's a chain within your life. God knows your chains. Freedom is embracing where you're at and walking with the Lord in humble obedience to Him. Here's the secret. If deliverance in your mind, the definition of deliverance is the change of your circumstances. Listen, the day of your deliverance from those circumstances, it will come, but there'll be new chains. That's not deliverance. Rather, your deliverance, Christian, your freedom, your joy, your rejoicing, Christian, is when you, through the power of Christ, joyfully embraced even the most detestable circumstances that you might find yourself facing right now. Paul was bloodied, bound, and beaten, and he rejoiced, and it turned for his salvation, deliverance, and joy. We're going to close with a song tonight, and the musicians can come, and the theme of this song is thankfulness. And as you sing these words, thank you to the Lord, we're going to stand together, and I'm going to challenge you To not thank God just simply for the salvation that he provided when he sent his son to the cross. Not to just thank him for his promise for in the eternity. But I'm challenging you that as we stand and sing this song, that in the very front of your mind, as you sing these words, thank you to the Lord, will be that thing that you so desperately want to be away from. That you will thank God for it. You know why? Because he never makes a bad decision. And if you belong to him, then the circumstances and the situations that surround your life are his perfect will to perfect you. That's his desire. That's what he wants. The furtherance of the gospel, to stir up courage and boldness in others, and that Christ might be magnified through our lives. Father, we pray tonight that you would make these things real to us. Each one of us has a set of circumstances that we would rather not be facing, Lord. And we pray tonight by the power of your Spirit, by the very presence of your Son in this place right now, each one of us would be set free. That you would make us willing to joyfully receive what you have ordained within our lives so that your purposes might be accomplished through them. Open our understanding. Soften our hearts. 
I pray that there would be tears of repentance within us as we realize that your intentions for us are good, even in the things that we see as bad. So please, Lord, meet with us here. Meet with each one of us in this moment now that we might understand that your intentions, your desire for us is good, for peace and not for evil, to bring us to an expected end. We ask that you would be magnified in our midst tonight and in our lives tomorrow. In Jesus' name, let's all stand.